And we're going to jump right into uh, the message today. It is the third week of our series, Why Cancel Culture Won't Work, and Why It Won't Prevail. And we've looked at cancel culture, which is the, the current practice of one group in culture, one set of opinions and values, to try to come against an alternative view and stifle their voice, even though free speech is a, a tenet of our, of our nation, and to cancel their view. It happens on both ends of the political and, and uh, worldview spectrum, both liberal and conservative. Studies show more frequently against conservatives, but regardless, it's there. We cited some cases that concern me the most when it comes to spiritual liberties, Christian liberties, and biblical viewpoints in our culture. And uh, this weekend, we're going to look at what I feel is the greatest threat to the church when it comes to cancel culture. History will tell us that the opposition from without the church on the outside, emperors and kings and dictators and empires have tried but have never been able to cancel the church. And while I'm concerned about the exterior threat, my greatest concern about the church and this cancel culture is that we, by default, cancel ourselves. And uh, the threat of neutralizing ourselves as the church is huge. And I think there's evidence that that's already occurring. And it can happen so subtly we don't even realize it. And so... I'm going to go back to our source verse that we started with when Jesus was talking to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And he said, talking about the gates of hell, he said, I say also to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now that was meant to be inspiring and courage bolstering for those who heard that. When you think of the gates of hell, understand that gates... On a, on a fortification, on a fortress, are a defensive place. Uh, think Lord of the Rings when the gates are there and, you're, and the enemy's trying to burst through those gates and conquer a city, conquer a fortress. The gates of hell are at that fortress place of hell, if you will. And, and the Bible says, you know, gates are, are inanimate. They stand there. Gates don't, like, come to get you. All right? It is the church on offense coming against the gates of hell. And the gates of hell cannot stand, the Bible says, when the church is on offense. Now, a concern that I have in this regard, I have some assumptions. Uh, I've got several assumptions that kind of undergird my thinking of where we're going with this message. So I want you to connect on the same page. First of all, the Bible says... The fear of the Lord. Say fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of understanding. It says that in Psalm 111. Uh, It says that in Proverbs 9. And this is a concept that we, we are not comfortable with, fear of the Lord. It's a sense of awe and reverence that strikes us to our core. I believe as a culture, we have so far drifted from that in American Christianity that we don't fully grasp it. When Isaiah had a vision of God, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and he saw the courtroom of God. What did he do? He, he, he crumpled to the ground and said, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. 
trembling, fear-filled, awe. How contrary that is, most of us will go, man, wouldn't that be cool? Isaiah said anything but cool. Oddly enough, because they don't fully understand that aspect of fear and a sense of awe, is that the next thing I think of is that a proper response is to love the Lord. All your heart, that's a heart, mind, soul, strength. Sorry for the sloppy penmanship. It's to love God. A proper response in the fear of the Lord is to understand His Word, understand who He is, and then we cannot help but love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. After all, bottom line, as Jesus' best friend John did, God is love. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. How in the world can we say God is love even though we fear him? How does that all work? I would suggest to you that we don't fully understand that. We've kind of hijacked our image of God. But the reality is there is meant to be a sense of awesome dread and reverence and respect for God. Uh, And then there is a love for him because we realize that God is love. Now, there are two more concepts that go with today's message. They're actually places, not just concepts. Take that back. I am glad this is a place. Say it. Heaven. Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven, he told us in the Gospel of John. And uh, eternal life is that force, Zoe, that emanates from Christ himself, the place of life for eternity. There is a contrast place to heaven You know it. Say this. Hell. Sin is the spiritual force emanating from Satan uh, that seeks to destroy. And from our perspective, I see not only our culture guilty of somewhat canceling these or at least making them concepts rather than realities. I see Christians doing that. We kind of dumb it down at the very least. When it comes to heaven... I look at worship over the last century. You know what we don't sing about a whole lot? Heaven. I mean, after all, it ain't too bad here. If you go back throughout history, you want to see the hymns and the songs that sing about heaven. It was, it was a century ago or, or, or so when you had a generation of Christians who'd been through, at least in this country, a civil war. And then they'd been through World War I. They'd been through a worldwide pandemic. They'd been through a stock market crash. They'd been through World War II. And they wonder, where is it going to end? And you know what? The songs that come out of that season of a believer's life is when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing it will be when we all see Jesus will sing and shout the victory. Now we're a little less concerned, unless we go through the pain, the loss of a loved one, or things get a little scary for a moment out there. We don't talk too much about heaven. We don't long for heaven because it ain't too bad here. And we have creature comforts that our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents could have only dreamed of. And so, yeah, heaven, let me get there. But, you know, I'm doing pretty good like right now. 
And then when it comes to hell, I have to admit, in prepping this message, I realize how seldom I preach on hell. And from what I hear, most people who do what I do rarely preach on it. And yet, Jesus mentioned it often with a certain sense of clarity and gravity. And so we're going we're gonna to dig into it, and I'm going to quote the words of Jesus. And because when you cancel hell, when you dial it way down, not a motivator, not a deterrent, not a catalyst. When you dial heaven down, same thing. So we're going to go over here this weekend, and I want us to talk about hell, that place, the gates of which cannot prevail against us. Jesus told us it's a place of agony in the darkness. Think about that, agony in the darkness. He said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. Say outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Almost the exact quote again in Luke chapter 13, 28. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I didn't say that. Jesus said. We likewise have had a tendency to so nice up Jesus that we want to skip over these things that he said that trouble us. It's a place of horrific destruction. He said in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear Satan. Because of the magnitude of destruction, the horrific destruction he can do. Homicide is certainly horrific. Martyrdom, the same. Hell is beyond our comprehension of the agony and the destruction that awaits. Therefore, Jesus would tell us, and he did, avoid it at all costs. Avoid it at all costs. Most of us aren't even thinking about it. Listen to the hyperbole with which he brings the warning about hell. He says in Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become trusting. Unless you yield yourself. Verse 8, look at what he says. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. I didn't say that. Jesus did. What do you... What body part do you most frequently sin with? To gossip? We tell you, cut out your tongue. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. Understand that Jesus doesn't wink at our sin in an age of grace. He says whatever you have to do to get it out of your life, to not be a barrier between you and eternal life in heaven, do it! What's incredible before we get too defensive is that when we talk about hell, hell wasn't made for us. 
And we're going to jump in and out a little bit of philosophical, a little theological speculation. But Jesus is talking in this passage about the, what's called the great white throne judgment. There'll be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. And to the unrighteous, the sheep and the goats, the goats, the unrighteous, who were, showed no compassion toward human, humanity in need, showed no Christ-likeness toward them. In Matthew 25, 41, then he will also say to those on his left, that's to the unrighteous, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me explain that phrase. It's important. We don't know a lot of the details about origins and what happened before Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. And the Bible tells us that when it comes to eternal things and spiritual things, we see through a glass darkly anyways, until someday we're in heaven, we'll see clearly. But we know that there was in some way Lucifer who was the chief of the angelic hosts. His arrogance got the best of him and he set himself up against God, opposed to God. And, and Lucifer was cast down from heaven in his rebellion along with the third of the angelic hosts that he persuaded to go with him. Where is he to go? There's God, there's heaven, there's the universe he's created. And so God creates hell. Hell was created as this place of torment and agony, as this place of deterrent for the devil and his angels. And here's where I get theologically and spiritually speculative, but I think it's right on. <laughs> It appears that when God created the angelic hosts, he did not create their spiritual DNA, whatever we call it. He did not create them redeemable. In modern-day Christian vernacular, Christians, or angels can't get saved. So those angelic beings were cast into hell with no hope of redemption. It appears that just seeing the horrors of hell has been deterrent enough that the number of angelic, formerly angelic, now demonic hosts who are now in the dominion of hell, those demonic hosts, that's a fixed number because no other angels seeing the horrors of hell would dare anything to lead them there. So it wasn't created for us. God didn't intend for humans to go there. And, and, and so when God created mankind... He created his spiritual DNA, our spiritual DNA, that we are redeemable. Every sinner here said, thank God. Too many people, unfortunately, will end up there. Wasn't created for us. And, and let me say that when it comes to hell... Don't fall prey to the faulty logic when you ask the person on the street, well, do you believe there's a heaven still huge percentage, 80, 90% plus say yes, believe there's a hell, somewhat less do. And when you ask them, well, you suppose you're going to go, nobody says, yeah, I'm going straight to hell. Well, they say, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. When you ask them why, well, I've been a good person. I've lived a good, I've tried to live a good life. Being a good person and trying to live a good life has nothing to do with whether or not you get into heaven. It's like my old Catholic neighbor, Joe Sobolczyk, who passed away, didn't accept Christ till his very deathbed, and 
I'd help him out, do handyman projects. He had MS, and as I would leave his home walking down the driveway, he'd often yell, boy, you're sure going to have a good place up there based on all the good stuff you do. And I said, Joe, I gotta tell, how many times I got to tell you, it's not about what you do, it's about who you know. Heaven is a perfect place. And so being a perfect place, good isn't good enough. Good isn't perfect. The Bible says, actually, my righteousness is as filthy rags compared to God's. The Bible says in Isaiah that my sin creates a chasm, a gap between me and God, and I cannot get there from here but for the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, say many, many, many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Far too many people talk themselves out of their need for a Savior because they talk themselves out of the severity of their sin. And we tend to talk ourselves out of the reality of hell. Judgment is part of justice. It gets more and more uncomfortable as we unpack this and see how much Jesus said about hell and the realities of it and the agony of it and the inescapability of it, except through him. And yet, when you, if we're honest with ourselves, put aside our fearful defensiveness. Judgment's essential to justice. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I've done it often. How many of us can't stand it when somebody is doing something unjust or wrong and they get away with it? <clears throat> Even as a kid, that's not fair. Did you have to teach your four-year-old to say, that's not fair? It's inherent. Why? Because we're created in the image of God, and God is a God of perfect justice, perfect mercy, perfect grace, perfect compassion, but perfect justice as well. And so when it comes to judgment, judgment is a necessary part of justice. When I think of all the horrific, abusive genocidal, unjust things that Satan has motivated and prompted through he and his minions. There's a certain... When I read Revelation 20, verse 10, this is now the third last chapter of the Bible. This is the final judgment. And it says in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name, here's a verse I wish wasn't in the Bible, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Quick explanation of a huge passage. 
The beast and the false prophet, those are personalities of end times I'll not get into. But hell is a final, a place of final judgment. And books are open. There's the book of life. When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Guess what? If your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, the other book full of how you lived your life, all your acts and deeds according to your deeds, it's like delete because your name is there and you are forgiven. That's good news. But the person who says, I'll do without Jesus Christ, thank you, then fine, you'll be judged without Jesus Christ on the merit of your works. And you will find what I just told you, oh, dear God, my righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm damned. Paul talks in Philippians chapter 2 that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is this scene. Because every person who's ever lived will be resurrected, standing before the throne of God. And I believe we will have this divine aha moment. He's who he said he is. He is divine. He is holy. He is perfect. And it all fits together and makes sense. Part of me wishes, not part of me, I wish this passage wasn't in there. I kind of do wish, yeah, live a good life, be a good person, and you'll be fine. If you think it's hard to listen to, you ought to preach it to several hundred people. Jesus went to great lengths. In fact, at times when he talked about that fire, Gehenna, uh, he may have been outside the gates where there was a literal perpetual fire burning a refuse of the city. You can imagine the stench and the flames and the smoke, how horrific that is. And he draws parallels. There's something like that that burns for eternity. And so I, I asked the team to put together, can you take the imagery that Christ gave us and just assemble it for us to get a feel for it. And so I encourage you to open your heart and your mind and and watch this. troubles me. I asked for it, and to be honest, when I saw the finished product, we debated, do we show that? I can't help but think of names, faces, people I know. That may very well be someday their anguished cries.
I believe Jesus meant hell to trouble us. As a deterrent to each of us to live in a way that we'll never face it, but also as a motivator for each of us to change the course and the trajectory of people who may be going there. It's almost too much to process, so we're going to have some ways that we respond to that, that we kind of neutralize it, that we kind of push to the side. And I want to have an illustration uh, that will encourage us to be aware of distracting reactions to that reality that Jesus preached. Now, he didn't have a digital screen and, and a video and all the sound effects, but that's the point he was making. We have a tendency when we talk about hell that there's several ways to look at it, and there may be. We want to, at the very least, make it figurative. I don't find too much figurative in Jesus talking, but we want to kind of, we want to kind of put it into perspective and we want to find a way to cope with what otherwise seems horrific and unconscionable. And we tend to ask questions about how could a God who is a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of forgiveness really damn people to that? If you haven't wrestled with that, you need to. And I have an illustration that the team said last night it, it worked. You never know when you first lay these out. So let's get a close-up of this, and uh, I just want to ask you, how you like it? What do you think? What opinions do you have? Any suggestions? Any critique? You're sitting there going, you know, he has lost it. <laughs> you need to retire. <laughs> well, let me, let me hit the pause on that and ask you a question, a little different one. When it comes to the universe all the physical knowledge of our universe, all the metaphysical knowledge, all of the, the DNA, mental, spiritual realities, emotional realities, relational, all of that, when it comes to all of the knowable and understandable, comprehensible knowledge and workings of the universe, how many of you would say that as humans, we probably have a good handle on 90% of it? Ludicrous, right? How about half? We, we have a good handle on half the knowledge of all the universe and beyond, but half. We're close. 25%. Let me just give you a benefit of the doubt because I know I pastor a really sharp group. I'm going to say that you understand 10% of all the spiritual realities of an eternal universe that existed before us and will exist beyond this life. I'm going to give you, you got 10% of an understanding of how God works, how morality works, how spirituality works, how justice really looks, and what compassion and mercy is all about. I'm going to say you understand 10% of it because you are sharp. This is a 300-piece puzzle. And I asked yesterday, it came together late in the week, and I asked Shane and Pastor Shane and Dirk, hey, guys, can you help me? Yesterday about 4 o'clock, I, I need to count out 30 pieces, and we've got to put them about where they belong. This is 10% of the pieces to the puzzle. So go ahead, tell me about it. What don't you like? What do you love? What makes sense and what doesn't? 
With all due respect, do you see how ludicrous it is for us to shake our fist and to accuse of injustice a God who sees and understands all of it? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unshakable his judgments and his paths are beyond us comprehending. And the Bible says that right now on this planet, we see like through a glass darkly. It's like when you, when you feel a car at an intersection before you hear it, before you see it. Typically the windows are real dark. Looking through those windows, those dark windows, and you can't, sometimes you're going to tell if somebody's in there, all right? You barely see a shadow. That's how we see things of eternity. We see through a glass darkly, but someday, I believe one of the greatest aha moments of all eternity is going to be when we stand before him and our earthly blinders are off, and all of a sudden, and we have 100% understanding, and when we look at what used to be 10%, now we'll look at it and go ahead and show the picture, we'll see the whole picture. <laughs> Nothing theological about that, but you can't find that at Walmart Kids Department, all right? <laughs> How in the world do you get that from that? You don't. How do you and I possibly understand justice and mercy from this? We can't. We become like a child, Jesus said, and we have that childlike, trusting faith that says, okay. But instead we get angry because with our understanding of 10% of the pieces, we feel like we should be able to call God out and what he can and cannot do. Our speculations really show our arrogance and our lack of fear of the Lord. But here's the good news. There is hope against hell. Jesus said it in eight, Matthew 18, verse 11, that same chapter. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Other verses, he says, has come to seek and save that which was lost. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, you've accepted him as your Savior, asked him to forgive you your sins, he was seeking you, the Holy Spirit sought you out, convicted you, brought you to repentance, and you are now saved from that fiery hell. If you haven't made that decision, stop by the VIP room after service. They will pray with you to do that. And yet you can give God an applause for that. Understand this, how we are canceling ourselves. In John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most popular verses, if you ever memorize a verse in the Bible, you probably memorize this one. For God so loved them. In fact, read it with me, with passion. I'm going to make you stand up, all right? Let's do it. For God Now that, from my perspective here, blows my mind. That God would give his only begotten son for, as one hymn says, such a wretch as I. Why did he do it? He gave his only begotten son so that the one who believes in him shall not perish. Say perish. perish. 
When God saw us, God saw the world, he realized they've got a sin problem. It's going to lead them straight to hell unless somebody saves them and stops them. And the only one who can is my son through his blood on a cross. I'll tell you right now, I don't fully understand that. But I write that off to all of this that someday I'm going to understand. I don't understand why the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But when I get to heaven, I realize, whoa, sin, death, boom, now I see why. It's going to fully make sense to me why the only option the creator of the universe could have, and he's a creative being, is he had to give his only begotten son to die for me on a cross that I would not perish. Jesus did not come to, to the earth and die on a cross so that I would not have problems with my job, so I would not get cut from the team, so I would not have financial issues or emotional struggles or family. He did not die on a cross to do all that for me, and yet we have taken the death of Jesus Christ so that I would not perish and made him a divine fix-it kit instead of a divine savior and redeemer. And we have dumbed him down, and we are canceling the very purpose of Jesus Christ. We are. We're supposed to bring it. I had lunch with my friend Jimmy Mann quite a while back. I've quoted him before, and he basically made the analogy. He said, brother, we are, this world is the Titanic, and it is going down. Our job is to get life jackets on as many people as possible and see them saved from hell, period. And so Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13, we're supposed to bring it. He says, you, save me. Say we, that sounds better. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt's become tasteless, if the salt has canceled itself and dumbed itself down, if the salt has given the impression that the flavor is for comfort, not for salvation, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Say, I am. We are. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, church, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are the hope of this canceling world. And I've read enough history to know that Come what may, the powers of hell unleashed cannot cancel Jesus Christ and his church. But we can. I have a prayer team that meets before service each weekend. We've been doing it for 25 plus years. And last night, one of my prayer team members, when I told him where it was going, he said, you know, really, biblically, this lost world, we're their only hope. And then we both paused. And he said, that scares me. And I said, me too. Because I watched that video and I said, I've got names and faces. Like, Lord, is my light shining like it needs to? Am I praying for those people? It's the first step in reaching them is to pray for them, to have compassion for them. And just as a side note, studying the modern church, George Barna, the number one Christian sociologist and researcher, his group, Roxanne Stone, editor-in-chief of the Barner Group, 
under the headline, Sharing Faith is Increasingly Optional to Christians. After all, aren't these the big questions of life? Don't these topics matter more than anything else? The truth is, most Christians are busy with other things. The day-to-day of normal life, jobs, kids, budgets, sports, weather, what's premiering on Netflix this week. None of this is bad, but the unfortunate reality is that most adults don't seem to connect their everyday experiences with their faith. Or at least they aren't talking about it, they do. So what's happening here? Why are Christians so reluctant to talk about their faith? The overarching cultural trends of secularism, relativism, pluralism, and the digital age are contributing to a society that is less interested in religion and that has marginalized the place of spirituality in everyday life and is canceling a self-canceling church. Not on our watch. Not on our watch. So we're going to celebrate the church. In, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, if you came in and got your communion elements, uh, please get them out. And if you didn't, raise your hand. Your section leader will bring it to you. Matthew 26 at the Last Supper. Verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Elsewhere, he said, It's broken for you. When Jesus left the planet, he basically told his followers in Matthew, I'm leaving. I'm handing off to you. When the world looks for me, they'll look at you. I'm empowering you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to shape you with the gifts of the Spirit. And now when they look at you, the the goal, the intent is they'll see Jesus. They'll see Christ in you. So would you bow your head with me? As Paul tells us, this should be a time of introspection. And as you hold that which represents the body of Christ, his physical body, but, but the body of Christ being part of the church, thank him for someone in the church that has blessed your life. Thank him for the opportunity you've had in the church. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about you're not connected, you're not part of the body like you should be, then repent and ask him for a new start or new opportunities and new doorways. And Lord Jesus, thank you. You lived and walked among us and you call us to be your body. We pray for a unity and a passion among us as the body of Christ that we will draw people to you. Heal any struggles and difficulties among us, Lord, that we be united. Satan doesn't fear a big church. He fears the united church. Unite us together in the word of God and the cause of Christ. In your name we pray. Let's take the bread. Matthew goes on to say, when he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And this is where then Jesus references heaven 
how it's meant to be an ongoing motivator. But I say to you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we are in heaven where there's no more sin or crying or death or pain. And we will raise our glasses in the toast to the goodness and the mercy of God. Take a moment and bow your head in prayer and, and the blood speaks to us of healing and forgiveness. And if you need healing in any way, physical, emotional, relational, mental, whatever, ask him for it. Ask him to be your great physician and thank him for it. And if you need forgiveness, ask him for that as the Holy Spirit convicts you, and he will. Jesus, we, we thank you for your blood shed for us. We don't fully understand it. Someday we will. But in the meantime, we drink deep the power of your healing in our bodies, in our relationships, in our lives, in our souls. Heal in Jesus' name. We drink deep forgiveness. It is a shameless forgiveness because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so we thank you. We remember you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's drink the cup together. And we're going to close this service as they close the Last Supper. It says in uh, that final verse, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're going to sing a hymn, or at least our worship team is. And from the time we started this series, I said, I want to close with this hymn. It is a hymn of huge confidence. It was written by Martin Luther. It's centuries old. and It was written in 1529. And he wrote it based on Psalm 46 about our intense struggle with Satan. And when he was going through difficulty and danger, he would say to his companions, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. It's written in the King's English. You'll have to kind of work your way through it. In fact, the, the team, only one of them had sung it in their life before yesterday. And so I interpreted the verses to them. And so, for instance, it starts off with a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. A bulwark is a, is, a, is a wall of earth and stone as part of a huge fort. It says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's old English for how I say the devil's good at what he does. We sing a song that God, he, God has no rival or equal. Another verse says, Lord, Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That basically, Lord of the Sabbath, he's Lord over everything. It says, the third verse, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. You know, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. And it says, one little word shall fall him. Do you know what that word is? You know who that word is? It's Jesus. And then it's the last verse, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Hold this life loosely. As the body of Christ, as the church, we cannot be canceled because we're heading to an eternal kingdom of heaven. Whether you sing it or not, stand together with us for a mighty fortress is our God. is our God our bulwark never failing 
Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabaoth is His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the Come hell or high water, we got this. We are the salt and light. We are the hope. You want to know? You want to know how they'll know if you're Christian? Jesus said, "By your love." And I've called back to Peter, one of Jesus' best friends. In First Peter three, this verse came to me. I looked up while you were singing or listening, and he said, uh, "Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation." And do not be in dread. They want to cancel you. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And let them have it. Conversations, not arguments. He says, being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. Be Jesus to a world that doesn't know Him. Be hope to a world that is hopeless and doesn't even realize it. Now more than ever before, the darker it gets, the brighter this little light of mine looks. And we're going to let it shine, and let it shine, and let it shine. You're going to start praying for people. That's where it starts. Every person you come in contact with this week, here's your homework assignment. Pray for them, Lord. If they're a Christian, encourage them in their faith. If not, help them to see their need for Jesus. And you can use me in the process. Do it. And by the way, Lord, who do you want me to reach out to? Who do you want me to do a good deed toward? Who do you want me to have a conversation with? Who do you want me to love like Christ did? 
you Wednesday night. See you Friday night. Have a great week.